Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. How's it everyone? Gabriel and Nicholas here. And we're uh, soon going to be unveiling our new logo, which we still need to argue about. Yeah. It, it's very difficult to create a logo when you have an art critic in the team because he's a, he has a discerning taste. I did use the phrase today when discussing the logo, that picture doesn't capture the essence of the tree. <laughs> Nicholas's response <laughs> offline was not as polite <laughs> as it is right now. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, I, I really like the look of it so far. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, we're also kind of excited about Brexit. Um, we just had some Brexit cake yes, in so, the office. So I asked, um, I asked for, I got a custom cake made, uh, which just simply read, Brexit is done with a large um, Union Jack on the top of the cake. And uh, it was also filled with sort of jam, like all English Strawberry things, jam. Or Englishy, Britishy things should have, yes. Mm. And it had some roses on the side. Yes. And it was very delicious, but it was pretty heavy and sweet. Yes. It was, it was, as, it was as sweet as a Scottish deep-fried Mars bar. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we did feel, because, so a lot of the office is quite pro-Brexit, but some people are very Romaner. Uh, but we, I think Nicholas told a good joke. Like this is one day where people on every side can sort of have a bit of a sigh of relief that the ordeal one way or another is finally over and you can have yes. your cake and eat it too. Yes. Sort of both sides get at least the win of clarity and go forward. Um, so that was a joyous occasion. And now it's really up to the Brits to see whether they can pull this off. Uh, they've in a sense, the, 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 you know, there are problems with the EU, um, but it does also provide a sort of set of trainer wheels for your economy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've taken those off. And so now they're going to have to negotiate some good trade deals. They're going to have to set very sensible economic policy and they're going to have to rein in their spending. And if they don't do all of those things, Brexit will be a disaster. But yeah. if they do do all of those things, Brexit will be a great triumph. Yeah, I like I like how you put that. I think the, the UK is traditionally quite a maritime kingdom. Yes. And I like the metaphor, the maritime metaphor of the EU being like a really titanic ship. Yes, indeed. This gargantuan thing, it doesn't turn very quickly. It sort of has a momentum of its own that almost makes the captain in charge redundant because uh, there's so much momentum. And uh, the UK is a massive economy. I think it's the world's seventh largest economy or something like that. But it has alacrity relatively speaking. It's much more like a little clipper that can tack to the wind and navigate choppy waters quite quickly. Uh, and the, so, yeah, in a, in a race, you'd expect the, the little clipper to win. Uh, but, of course, if the little clipper catches some tough headwinds or gets uh, blown against the rocks, then it's also more vulnerable. Uh, and I think they are in a kind of sensitive spot. I think uh, something to look out for, okay, so from the EU side, one of the things to look out for is what country takes from the successful Brexit, not that it's all done, but assuming that it goes relatively well, takes it to heart and takes it as an inspiration to try it themselves. So so the reason I've, I've suddenly gone a bit quiet was I just wanted to talk about the Battle of Salamis, 
which is an ancient Greek battle, <laughs> but well. as relation to this. Um, but I can't use it, unfortunately. But uh, I, I couldn't remember. So on one side in the Battle of Salamis, there's one side had uh, lighter ships that were more agile, and the other side had big, heavier ships. Mm. And I thought the Greeks had the lighter ships, but I was wrong. So never mind, ignore that, because it's not an appropriate analogy. <laughs> yeah, the Greeks, things were a bit backwards. One of the things that the poets used to write about the sea being the color of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as we can tell, history wasn't that different. <laughs> things were not that different back in the day. <laughs> well, they I don't know, maybe odd. the wine was very different. I don't think it was deep blue. <laughs> like... If it was, there was some kind of mold that (laughs) surely couldn't have been good for anyone involved. Maybe. I mean, those ship battles, they they were pretty... Oh, the ancient Greeks, now that you've got me onto this. (laughs) Some of the greatest greatest passages in in, uh, Homeric and Attic theater, in Homeric epics and Attic theaters, were about those sea battles. Because a lot of how it worked is that one ship would sort of try and broadside drive its nose through the yeah, you ramp, flank. You, you, stick, you stick a really big piece of metal on the front of the ship and you drive it into the other one. Yeah, and, so, and then everyone sinks and dies. Uh, I always wondered, like, dudes couldn't swim? Well, I mean, okay, think about it, right? Have you ever seen what a, what a Greek trireme looks like, how tightly packed it is? Yeah. Right, and so you've got these sort of three benches on top of each other. And if you're at the bottom... You're not getting out. There's so many tangled people and yeah. crushed wood. Debris. And, yeah. You can be the best swimmer in the world and you are finished. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, the, this, this is, there's a misconception that, that slaves were often used to row galleys. You know, we, there's like those uh, sort of 60s movies. Like I think Ben-Hur has a famous scene where they're all chained up in a mm. galley. Anyway, not that common, yeah. mostly because slaves are incredibly unreliable. Yeah. a bit useless and you know you have they're expensive and you have to change them all the time and you have to shackle them up and it takes forever it's much easier to just pay peasants to row the ship uh not that there weren't occasionally galleys that were rowed by by slaves so one of the one one of the great metaphors is there was you know pederasty and, and all kinds of uh, homosexual homo, homosexual behavior Mm. Was was really common in Attic Greece. Yes, and uh, I remember one of the not just Attic Greece, all of Greece. Yeah, uh, one of one of the guys saying that when he saw the buttocks of some young handsome man, they reminded him of two large hills through which the sea went, and he just could imagine his galley driving through. <laughs> they were really crude. Like, I mean. They did come up like Herodotus is kind of the father of history and Homer is kind of the father of poetry, at least you know, no, no, they in a certain did, tradition. I think there's something that happened there, which is that everyone realized that that was a terrible way to write love poetry. I want my canoe to go through <laughs> yes. your mountain top. They had to buttocks. do it first for everyone to realize it was terrible. That that's not... Well, some guys haven't figured it out. I'm sorry that I took us down this road, by the way. <laughs> okay, no, but there is a beautiful story. My favorite story... Uh, when I st- studied uh, ancient Greek theatre and was lucky enough to go visit uh, Athens and Delphi and the Sarans for a while, was about, I think it's in the Peloponnesian War and the Spartans have sort of gotten the Athenians cornered and they're mm. ready to go in and drive them all into the sea and Athens has kind of been uh, abandoned and the people are kind of on the move and so they're like, if, you, if we crush them now, we really will annihilate the city-state. And we can go and occupy the empty buildings. And that kind of thing had happened. And 
they were like, here we go. And one of the things you do is you sing to stay in time. Yes. And they'd been on the seas for a hell of a long time. So they had gone through the playlist, so to speak. And they got to one of the more mournful songs, a song that you sing about your enemy's total annihilation. Usually you kind of sing it afterwards, but sometimes when you're really being a bit cheeky, you can sing it on the way. Like, oh, how sad we are that, you know, not only we did we beat them, but we truly destroyed them. And now they're song. It's like, uh, you know, singing the German national anthem while rolling your tanks into Berlin. Exactly. <laughs> and, but it's a really, apparently really beautiful song. And some of the guys started to realize that the people who had composed this song were Athenians. And as the story goes, one of the lieutenants on one of the ships is like, we cannot go and completely destroy these people. For while we as Spartans are the true warriors of the Hellenic peoples, the Athenians have made pretty songs. And you know what? There is something manly and true in a pretty song too. And so he sort of, all of his people on his ship were like, you're right, we can't go and completely destroy these guys. And then they started shouting to the other ships, guys, remember, this is an Athenian song. And they were like, oh, hell, we can't go and destroy all these people. And so they kind of turned away from completely destroying this Athens. This sounds like the kind of sort of uh, romantic heroic nonsense that fills a lot of ancient history, which is great to read. And some of it is probably true, but sometimes you really do push it a little bit. No, that may be so. I think it's mad enough that it just could be true. Yes, yes. And uh, I w- and after being told this story um, by Michael Cadden, who's the head of the arts department at Princeton University, I was mm. sort of like, well, <laughs> I wonder if he's stretching it. And uh, I checked it out. And there, there's definitely some circumstantial evidence to support uh, it. It's probably a contemporary account that mentions this story. Yeah. So, and anyway, you know, maybe... Maybe when the day comes, when the when the uh, uh, total destruction of property rights uh, results in massive catastrophe, people will be singing, uh, I don't know, whatever Impy, the, the Johnny Clegg song. <laughs> and then they're like, oh God, we can't like, you can't say all white people are that bad. <laughs> I didn't, maybe that's not fair, but it's just, it's, it's maybe just as a poetic idea, yeah, you know, no, it's perhaps, like, perhaps. We, uh, we definitely, we definitely cross cultures as people and uh, you and I, Nick, definitely have taken a two and a half thousand year trip yes. there and back again. I think we were talking about the Brexit. Mar- Brexit yeah. No, but uh, the, yeah, the Brexiteers are the light nimble ship now um, that must navigate the powerful waves skillfully or yeah. else be capsized. Yeah. Um, but not like the Battle of Salamis where the heavy ships won. <laughs> so, what God, our, mes- our metaphors are getting very tortured. Let, let, so let's get back to the hard question. What European country do you think is most likely to take up the cudgel of bash- bashing Brussels on the head next? You know, I don't think it's that easy to, to say because, uh, you know, the sort of brexit groups like to say, oh, this is sort of inevitable chain now where... Uh, now that Britain has shown them that you can leave and not be too tortured by it, although they didn't entirely show that because it has been a torturous process. Yeah, it's been really hard. It's been a real test of their of their democracy. Yes, and I and I think you'd have to be quite arrogant to think uh, if you're Italy or Poland or something mm. that you have what it takes to go through the kind of ordeal that they went through without really ripping yourself to pieces. So I think the Eastern Europeans will never leave for two reasons. One, they get money from the EU net benefits, uh, unlike Britain, which was paid in more than it got out. But two, for Eastern Europe and their sort of traumatic history with the USSR, 
being part of the European Union is like a very distinct rejection. For them, it's not a question of are you in Europe or are you yourself. It's a question of are you in Europe or are you under Russian Eastern domination? Are you a colony of? Yeah, are you a colony of the USSR? And they see, and that's I think what motivated a lot of Ukrainians. They don't necessarily. I mean, obviously, they want the money and free movement that uh, that that the EU would bring, but they also believe that we will show once and for all that we are European, not Russian. We are not subject to Moscow. We are in this, you know, union, which I think uh, in a lot of those countries they kind of buy the hype of so the European Union as a sort of true federation where everyone is allowed to do their own thing. Yeah. Um, Whereas Moscow, the counter argument is that uh, here we go, Moscow's <laughs> chief apologist on this podcast. <laughs> so yeah, one kind of argument is that uh, Russia ain't all that bad. Uh, it's been victimized. The financial rape of Russia is perhaps the biggest single theft in human history and it's never been recognized by Brussels properly nor by the UK nor by the US and so really we're just joining the bullies and uh, not the victims another is that okay Poland's done really well for example you can hardly speak to a Brit who doesn't know themselves or someone else who's had a construction job done super cheaply and super well by a Pole but there's a brain drain and human capacity Actually, Poland's not doing that badly in the sense of like sort of, it's not like all the Poles just left Poland for Britain. It's got pretty good economic growth. Yeah. Um, it has some political problems because the Law and Justice Party is not always so pretty on the democracy train. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, uh, Poland's had very good economic growth. It's got the lowest unemployment rate of any former Soviet sort of Warsaw Pact country. Um and it, it, it has thrived in a, in a way that, that a lot of countries, I think, in Eastern Europe, former Soviet satellite states, really want to emulate. Right. So I think that I'm just trying to say that if things were to turn worse, yes. if the global economy were to take a bit of a dip, the EU's really had sluggish growth for a very long time, mm-hmm. uh, and, but it's still been relatively positive. A lot of that's had to do with Germany. And Germany, the Germany's going into pro- some proper headwinds now, and some of that has to do with shifts in its balance of trade. Some of it has to do with the fact that it's, the Bundesbank is sort of issuing negative coupon bonds. Its sort of pension scheme obligations are potentially worrisome. The East Germans' property prices haven't really appreciated fast enough to justify the kind of unionist rhetoric that has held the country together while the economy is supposed to catch up. Um, You might see often, I mean, we as South Africans really don't, I think, register this often enough. Uh, When you have an economic downturn, that's the time when race nationalists, zealots, xenophobes, and all kinds of things easily crawl out of the woodwork and say, here's someone to blame for why things are getting worse and yep. here's how you do it. And they yep. don't necessarily have to make sense. So if there was a downturn, I wouldn't be that surprised if Hungary goes more radical, Poland gets a tip mm. uh, and some other Eastern European countries. And in that climate of, of massive disruption, they would then say, you know, here's why we are not doing so well. We're sending our best and our brightest overseas to go and make pounds and then come back. But a lot of them aren't coming back. And when they do come back, they come back with sort mm. of silly ideas like supporting queer rights. Uh, so there's that cultural element too, right? Mm. Which is that a lot of Eastern Europe is still much more conservative and stuck in a bunker of kind of uh, 
uh, 20th century, 19th century thinking, whereas a lot of the countries that they go and visit, Europe, in Western Europe, mm. Germany, France, the UK, well, are think, much more I think they liberal think, I and think they, they can uh, they blame liberalism for, the, for their own yeah, problems. I think, I think they like... The, they want to be part of the West, but they also don't want to be decadent. And I think they think of a lot of the the sort of far Western Europe, the UK, France, Spain, as being decadent. Um, so, for example, what was it? Hungary uh, banned, or, or they didn't ban, but they cut all public funding for gender studies departments, for yeah. example, in, in their universities. And they've been very harsh on, I mean, George Soros's university, yes. Central European University, had to move from, uh, where was it, in Budapest? Mm-mm-mm. To Vienna, and then God, the Austrians nearly voted in some pseudo-fascists. Uh, so you see the the, the polls. Uh, just to give uh, some credence to what I was saying earlier, the polls are really suffering economically. Uh, they 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 were in 2017 growing at 4.9 percent, and now they're down to 3.6. I mean, you know, as South Africans, we should we should have pity on them because obviously 3.6 percent growth. The poor polls. <laughs> the poor poor polls. <laughs> What is the what is the highest we got in the last ten years? It was like about three, wasn't it? Or I'm two? not sure that we got three in the last ten years. Yeah, we got two, I think. I mean, I th- so straight after there was there was one year when we had a bit of a collapse after the financial crisis, mm. and then the next year it's like if you shrink a bit in one year, then the next year you can easily get quite large growth because you're kind of just regaining the lost ground mm. off a low base. But no, over the last ten years, I know for a fact because I've worked it out, per capita GDP has shrunk. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's grim. Anyway, let's let's get off the depressing reality. Okay, onto the flights of fancy. Well, okay. Just one last thing about Brexit. I think that if there's going to be so on the EU side, probably not. On the balance of it, probably the Eastern European countries aren't going to oh, jump on the train. Italy no, might. I forgot to answer your question. Yes, of course. The next most likely country to leave is probably Italy. Not because they see the EU as you know being this titling thing that. The, the, this this evil empire, but just because I think they want to spend a lot of money in the EU and let them. Yeah. So and and so my line is, if you want to leave the EU because you don't like Brussels, you don't like the bureaucracy yeah. and the red tape. That's a good. Reason. That's a good reason. Mm. If you want to leave the EU because you don't like Germany, because you think it's going to prevent you from spending lots of money like Greece, because they insist that you're not allowed to run a, a budget deficit of more than two percent per annum. South Africa is currently running about a six percent per annum budget deficit. We are adding huge amounts to our debt that's already too much we would we would be kicked out of the eu we're in a very greek kind of situation yeah. that, that leaving because you hate brussels good idea leaving because you hate germany very bad idea. very bad idea um although uh the, what the little bit i do know about italian politics which is crazy it's yeah it's like really weird it's very um it has very colorful characters i think uh one of the the uh, what's his name? Berlusconi, the one of the former prime ministers. Berlusconi, the Berlusconi, the guy who hosted Putin at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, the guy, and sort of had to politely ask his hookers to quickly leave the room while yes. they had a secret government meeting. Uh, the guy who was known for holding what were called bunga bunga parties. Yes, and who went on trial not for sleeping with a fourteen-year-old girl because in Italy that's legal. It was for paying a fourteen-year-old girl to sleep with him. Yeah. But as it turned out um, on appeal, uh, that they really couldn't establish that it was a f- pure financial transaction that he may have just bought her the jewelry because he likes to buy jewelry for young girls. Anyway, wait. News, news flash about ancient Greece: when dudes were having sex with young men, uh, they would often give them gifts, to be, and sometimes the young men would give the older men gifts too. And I once went to an exhibition in Athens where some of the gifts had been preserved. 
and a lot of the gifts were kind of statues of 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 willies. Oh yes, of penises. And there was one penis that had feet and wings. You just keep bringing it back to this. <laughs> and it also had a penis. The penis had a penis. Truly, were the ancients wise beyond what Dude. we could imagine? And that thing is two and a half thousand years old. It's been preserved. But Somehow it has survived. Berlusconi, though, has one of the best injuries I've ever seen a politician get. He was hit by a marble statue at some point. Someone <laughs> someone flung a marble statue, which is the most Italian way you can get injured. Yes. Um, uh, but so, so they've got this weird politics, and in their last election, uh, they had a very strange result because the two what they are called populist parties, or mm. the, you know, that term is very heavily abused. But the sort of outside the mainstream parties won, which was the Five Star League, uh, the sorry, the Five Star Party and the Northern League. Yeah. And they formed a coalition government, but one is sort of the right-wing version of populism and the other one is the left-wing version. The only thing they could both agree on was they didn't like immigrants, but apart from that, they yeah. had a big falling out. Eventually, the lefties took the government, yeah. but they're now polling really badly and it looks like the next time there's an election, the Nor Northern League will absolutely smash them and put in a right-wing coalition in, in uh, Italy. Yeah, um, so it seems likely, but, but they've, uh, my, my sense is that in the last decade, um, often the build-up to elections has produced surprises. Yes. People have sort of changed their minds, I think, because they don't have the same kind of politics that you see in the UK or South Africa or the US mm -hmm. where people are sort of married to, where a lot of people are married to political parties. So you're really competing for a also, fairly narrow middle. It's, it's like so many of their parties are quite new. Italy also has a kind of regional politics that makes other areas look like, you know, we, we talk about the north-south divide in Britain. Yeah. In Italy, that's a whole, whole other thing. Uh, yeah. My father said that uh, an Italian once told him that 10 miles south where you were born is where Africa starts in Italy. <laughs> and they look down on everyone who lives south of them, basically. Yeah, they've, so they've, a very cruel hierarchy. Of there is, and part of it has to do with the, the unification of Italy, which really started in the north, in the Piedmontese region. But also the... Um, in the 19th century. It's like quite... People think, I think part of the strange thing about Italy, and I got the similar feeling in Greece, mm. right, is that because there is so much history that survived for a couple of thousand years, mm. you think of them as being very old countries. Mm. But modern Greece is one of the early European uh, nation states. It's founded in what, just after it's sort of 1820 a revolt against the Ottomans. Exactly, now. exactly. And Lord Gordon, Lord, George Lord Byron, the, the great poet, is sort of goes down there to die. And, and support their cause. But Italy Italy forms much later. 1870s, I think. Yeah, I think oh. even even maybe 1880s. Sort of after, so Germany starting to unite and, and Italy gets it together. And at that point, the dialects are so different that uh, a lot of Italians can almost, you know, Tuscan Italians and Piedmontese Italians and so on can almost not understand each other. As one Italian general said upon the unification of the country, we have made Italy, now we must make Italians. Yeah, it's a really great line. And uh, one of the characters, um, Eric Schmidt, who renames himself Italus Favo, sort of comes from Trieste, which is there in the northern part, but it's kind of had it, even though it's sort of in the north, it has its own identity. Uh, he ends up living in three countries in his life, although he never leaves the, the town. The kingdom of Italy was proclaimed in 1861 on the 17th of March. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, 1860s. Anyway, the funny thing about him is that he tried, so he was so torn up about um, 
he was sort of Swabian, which is why he calls himself Italo Suevo. Italo, his pen name, he's a writer, to say that he's it's Italian. But he, because he's living in this really strange place where identitarian politics matters a whole lot and mm. there's this grand unification project, but at the same time, there, it's, a lot of it's not working uh, and a lot of people want to hold on to pre-Italian identities, like yes. like being Tuscan or Piedmontese well, the Northern, or the Northern League, that party I was talking about, starts basically as a separatist thing where the Northerners are like, we're the, we're the organized, rich part of the country and you're all losers. And so we, we want to go back to that. Yeah, and they wanted to basically, it was originally, I think, an independence movement for sort of Lombardy and Tux, uh, Tuscany. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's moderated since then, but that was the origins of it. But, and so... Anyway, the one of the interesting things about Italo Suevo is that he's, his literature doesn't do very well, and it's partly because he's trying to write in new standard Italian, but he's still he, he's not really good at it. He's only really good at writing in the dialect that he really learned to speak in, and so he doesn't do really well until he meets a guy called James Joyce, who then helps you know get the book throughout Europe to be celebrated. And then when James Joyce writes Ulysses, uh, Italo Suevo is basically his main inspiration for the character. And that makes him kind of a, a hero across time. But I've always thought a stand, you know, Ulysses is a notoriously complicated book to understand. This modernist, very confusing layers and masks behind masks behind masks. And I, I think that uh, Italian politics is a bit like Ulysses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a modernist project that you can't really wrap your head around, which means it could it could jump ship. Within the UK, I think uh, things likely to go well, but the major red flags are that the Northern Irish might now vote to leave the EU. Well, I mean, I mean leave the UK, they, stay they in the EU. Because Northern Ireland has a bad history of, of not really putting these things to democratic question. Yeah. Um, Scotland it's, might vote. That's that yeah, one. it's kind of complicated in Northern Ireland because, of course, Sinn Féin, which is the, the Republicans in Ireland, have always said we need to believe and unify um, with the rest of Ireland. So that hasn't really changed. Um, but what's complicating this is that the unionists say this is effectively making us independent because part of the, ne the negotiations have left Northern Ireland as a slightly different area of trade than the rest of the UK. Yeah, uh, and so the unionists are saying, "Well, we can't promise there won't be violence because you're trying to sell us off to the Irish." Yeah, um, so it's actually from both sides, as usually happens in Northern Ireland, that that there's some drama. But I don't think there's any serious thing of that yet. What's what's more immediate is that the Scottish National Party are very aggressively pushing now for a second independence referendum. Yeah, which so far Westminster has told them no, because it said last time was a once in a lifetime referendum that's how we sold, sold yeah it so you're one. gonna have to wait 20 years but then their counter argument is but at the time we were part of the eu and we've had this existential shift now we're not and that was a big part of the reason that people voted to stay in the uk was we thought well we're still in the eu so it's fine and now things have changed we need to make up our minds again but now of course you've got a problem which is that uh to get scotland into the european union is going to be a nightmare because if the European Union simply accepts them in, despite the fact that their finances are in a shocking state, um, it would encourage everyone from Catalonia to whatever separatist countries you have in Europe, there's a couple of them scattered about, uh, to leave, which would make the European member states very unhappy. Yeah. Um, and the, the other problems, of course, like I said, the finances. Scotland's deep in the red. Yeah. 
Uh, Currently, I mean, it's mainly... That's one of the weird things about the Scottish independent movement is that it's really hard to... You know, it's it like is, they make a lot of more money from England than they Yeah, than as far as I'm to. concerned, it is the one of the most... It's, 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 it's a lot of similarities to s- some of South Africa's kind of... Uh, identitarian. Identitarian grievance movements, with the exception that, at least in South Africa, the people who suffered the grievance are still alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, which legitimizes it to an yeah. extent. In Scotland... It's easier you to know, understand. It's, it's it's we want revenge for for the English invasion of twelve forty something. You know, yeah, we, we that really is a joke. In yeah. South Africa, if some guys like, dude, apartheid was brutal to me and my father and my father's father and yeah. my mother and my mother's mother, then you know that that's very real, and um, you've got to find a way to deal with that. You want to try and not find a counterproductive way of dealing with that, um, but you need to deal with it. When someone's griping about. King Charles. I mean, I was just listening on the radio. King Charles the uh, First, who was executed by Parliament in 1642, I think it was. Yes. His clothes that he was executed in are now on display in the British Museum in a rare little moment because they have to keep it very protected because it's silk and it, it'll it's, wither away. One of the funny things about him is that when he was running away from the Parliament's army in in one of the important English civil wars when they were starting to move to a more constitutional system, he ran to the Scots. Because the Scots had been fighting the English parliamentary army too. But then the Scots were like, nah, bruh. Your army's not that great. So then the Scots handed the king over to back to the English parliament to kill him. And then he made a deal with some other guys and then ran to them. And then they were also like, nah, bruh, and handed him back to the English (laughs) parliament a second time. And the English parliament is like, dude, you can't trust this guy. He keeps breaking out of jail, chop his head off. But it's like it, you know, it's like history that that's that's that far away. Mm. Really, it really should be like the Greek history. It should be something that's intellectually stimulating, uh, that might echo some kind of metaphors that are probably silly. Unless, unless, but it's know. not really something to beef about. It's unless not something to change your your concrete life over. Exactly, um, and of course, as as many people uh, forget. The British Empire was as much a Scottish Empire as it was a, a English one, in a very real sense. At the height of imperial power in Britain, Scots are everywhere doing all sorts of things, like uh, David Livingstone and Adam Smith, and they have this very outsized role considering Scotland as a tiny population. Do this do in Spionkop and and so on. They were like guys in kilts. Yeah. And one of the well, a nice detail from the Anglo-Boer War. The guys in kilts were some of the best British soldiers. Mm. Uh, I think this is maybe the first war rather than the second one. But when they had to lie down in the sun, when they sort of were under fire and then you have to take a bit of uh, cover, the backs of their knees (laughs) were burnt so badly that they couldn't walk. And that's when the Scots started rethinking their kilt policy (laughs) in war. It took it took the South African blazing sun. And And they've never completely abandoned it, though. Even today, I think some Highland regiments still wear kind of kilts occasionally. Yeah, definitely Um, ceremonially. Yeah, definitely ceremonially, but but not. uh, I think even in in uh, in the First World War and things, sort of like uh, the Black Watch and stuff, still had uh, uh, kilt uniforms for a bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really, Scottish nationalism is, I think, the thing to watch now as we uh, Brexit. But what 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 was our next topic that we were going to talk about? We had a we had a whole list of interesting and varied things. Yeah. One of them was okay. Brexit day over. So Brexit day is over. You, whether well, it's you not over, but it's, you know, it's, most of the people listening to this, it'll probably yeah. be over or close to over. I just want to say one last thing about Brexit, which is that just to remind everyone, Nicholas and I have different views. He was quite a Brexiteer from the start. Well, no, not quite. I was I was very unsure. I was on the fence until a week before. 
look uh-huh. at. And then I watched uh, just kind of, I hadn't fully engaged with it. And I was really swayed by the sovereignty argument yeah. that, that, you know, sort of, uh, you can't have this undemocratic force making rules for you. Um, I mean, I'm actually quite in favor of grand federal unions mm. like the United States, like in theory what the European Union could be. Mm. Um, but I think that the character of the European Union has for a very long time been sort of poisoned towards a very uh, authoritarian centralizing impulse. Mm-hmm. If the European Union was more aggressively federal in its in its in its outlook it didn't want to move to eternal uh, centralization but sought to integrate while keeping its federal structure in mm-hmm. a very serious way i'd be more okay with it that, so that was you i i i was a remainer on the day if i could have voted i would have voted remain but i also sort of thought you know whichever side wins the referendum that's what got to be what happens because a referendum is such a direct exercise in democracy. It's the kind of thing you probably shouldn't do on a question like this. But if it is something you're going to do like this, then the winners have to be the winners. And you can't go having a second referendum because then you might as well have a third. Yeah, and, and that was when I got a little bit more passionate about it. Like yeah. When it first happened, I thought, ha, 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 isn't this funny? Yeah. But when I saw that the sort of the, the mother of parliaments, as it's sometimes called, being torn apart yeah. and everyone coming up with silly, silly no arguments. one wanting to be a noble loser like there's yeah. something about being a noble loser you fight you fight the campaign you think that you're probably right but then you 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 dedicate yourself to the process and you say you know this is the process and so long as no one's cheating on the vote uh if we lose and one my final gripe is just that i i whenever they said people weren't well informed you know, the reason we should have a second referendum is because the first time people didn't really know what was going on. It's like, you're saying you failed. You're saying I didn't inform you properly because I wanted this not to happen and I knew all the reasons, but I didn't tell you. And I feel like uh, it's kind of silly to say, you know, I failed my job the first time to campaign properly for this referendum. So give me another go. Anyway, so we see how it turns out. So I've got a thought experiment. Oh, yes. We were talking about this earlier and... It was one of those moments where we kind of go, oh, damn, we should have saved it for the show. Yeah. But uh, we're going to try and recreate it for the show a little bit. Yeah. So the thought experiment goes like this. You step into a time machine. Zoop. You've gone into South Africa 2040. And you bump into a friend. And Let's not say 2040. Let's say 2060. Okay, 2040 or 2060. I'm not sure. And you, and you get to ask one question to figure out what's the state of the nation. Before you're torn back through the vortex of time to... Yeah. yeah. And, okay, so an obvious question would be, like, what's GDP growth? An obvious question would be, how free and fair are elections? Uh, and ob- the most obvious question would be, like, what's the state of the nation? And if it's a well-informed friend, you know, then he's going to be able to tell you in a paragraph kind of how things are. But I'm thinking more like a dashboard indicator, like something that's not directly asking the question, but something that like gives you a really good sense of what the answer is likely to be. So I came up with a question that seems all right at first, but when you think about it, it's not that great, which is my question was, do you have an electric fence? Because I thought, well, you know, this will tell us several things. Firstly, uh, are people kind of, is there sort of a, a middle class that's still hiding um, from crime? Um, and is there, do, do people you know, feel unsecure in their houses and like they need yeah. to barricade themselves up, that kind of thing. 
But yeah, uh, and I think part of that is we've both lived in America. Yes. And one of the great things about living in well, America, I didn't live in America, but I've traveled. But you've lot. traveled there. Is mm-hmm. is when you see people who have like a front door and then a garden and the, then it faces yeah. the street and there's no physical barrier to like looking at their house You're or going to their front door and knocking on it. I was struck it's, by it. It feels there's. It, it feels, feels beautiful. It feels lovely. Yeah. I, I remember walking past an American house, seeing an open window with a laptop there. Yeah. And just n- no one, you know, they'd never, they, it hadn't even crossed their mind that someone would steal it out the window. Yeah. And it's obviously not like that in all of the states mm. or all of Canada or whatever, but in yeah. lots of places in the world. Yeah, in the, in the suburbs, in the middle class suburbs, that's how it is. Yeah. Um, which is how it should be, at least, you know, that's what it means to be middle class, is to kind of be above poverty and, and violence and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but the flaw of that is, of course, you know, you can get some misleading things. So someone might say, no, I don't have an electric fence because there's no electricity. <laughs> I have a barbed wire fence yes. and Rottweilers. Yes. Right. And so, okay, so, so I don't think the the sort of scenario I was painting earlier, where you have uh, massive land invasions and this uh, song being sung to kind of maybe change people's minds, that's not a realistic scenario at all. Uh, I, I I just don't see. I I, I struggle to see, a lot based on IRR polling, a lot based on my travels around the countryside and and various other people's reports. I don't see the kind of uh, militant anger that the EFF often mm. tries to speak to being mm. very widespread. There's definitely quite a hardcore yeah. uh, of... of uh, and things are going to, of course, change. Things can change. I think it's very unlikely that they do change that much. But I do think that this sort of thing of, of like electric fences becoming increasingly less popular uh, because electricity is increasingly less reliable. I don't think that's unrealistic at all. I mean, I think that's kind of... Uh, but yeah, so okay. And so we were asking one of our colleagues, uh, what did she say? I can't remember. She had she had a bunch of suggestions, um, but but we were kind of trying to avoid ones that were too obvious. Yeah, she was thinking a little bit like, oh, what's GDP? Yeah. yeah. Uh, she and she was saying like, what's what's the price of a loaf of bread? Mm. Had, you know, which if you knew that there hadn't been hyperinflation, then you'd know that. Lesesha uh, Kanyaho's Reserve Bank kind of relatively yes, yes, sober yes. policies have stayed in place. No. Uh, but your your idea was, uh, I think, probably the better one. Um, I, I'm still not entirely convinced as to its full comprehensiveness, but it is a very good dashboard indicator. Yeah, well, it's just an interesting one because because it does this kind of out of left field thing. So I thought if you could ask someone the following: Is it taboo to say that colonialism had some positive and some negative legacies? The answer to that question would tell you a lot about what's going on in the public square of South Africa. So background information. Uh, my understanding of South African history uh, and African history more broadly is that this continent had a really uh, unfortunate set of geographical overlays. Uh, it's unusually kind of north-south oriented rather than east-west. And it was isolated from uh, the sort of hubs of civilization trade and population yeah so where you get population booms a lot of the thing is domesticating animals that come from other places so when you're on an east-west 
yeah, continent and, and, and like trade, Eurasia. Trade boosts the civilization. So if you have fewer advanced economies to trade with, it's more difficult to sort yeah. of get anything. So it's easy. So going east-west is 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 relatively easier because the climate stays relatively similar. So you, so chickens that work here can work there. Fruits, oranges, citrus that come from the Himalayan mountains can kind of get spread all the way across. It's very hard to go north, south, up and down Africa because you go through rainforests, you go through deserts, two deserts. Also, Africa. It's has harder to move. It's harder to have the same kinds of plants that you can plant. Africa has uh, animals that are far more. Uh, adapted to, to 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 dealing with um, less adva- technologically advanced humans so when humans got out of africa they just massacred everything you know in north america south america europe everything went extinct basically because humans hunted it to extinction yeah or they domesticated it yes whereas in africa not a lot of domestication a lot of things are very tough and resilient and it's difficult to do that kind of thing and also it's kind of uh you know the climate's a bit different most of africa is quite warm yeah, Central Africa is super rainforesty, and there are a lot of human pathogens yes. uh, that make it hard for your populations to grow very far. The before worst form of malaria. Ebola keeps popping up now as like a, a modern form of this kind of thing that's really yeah, you seems have to plague Africa. Yellow fever, for a long time. And dengue fever, and Nile fever, and lots of things like that. I mean, you did have some of that in Europe, but often Africa has some of the most virulent strains and stuff. So, anyway, there's a lot of reasons why Africa is. And final reason that I really like from John Reader is is this sort of uh, like a lot of people, a lot of students of the Industrial Revolution will tell you how fortunate the circumstances were that were that kind of coalesced in the UK. So you kind of you've got coal that's relatively close to the surface. Yeah. So you get coal mining that you can do quite easily, mm. and with that you get the energy to fire various kinds of industry, and with that you kind of get. Uh, people figuring out how to make pumps and engines, combustion engines, and that allows you to pump water out of the mines, which allows you to mine more coal. And so you've got this reinforcing loop, right? Of You start with something and then it quickly leverages its way up. You also need to transport the coal so that it, it, it uh, gets you thinking about trains and steam engines then are a good way to run the you, trains. So you get more people doing combustion engines to pump the coal out, to fire the coal, to move the coal. And so these things are all tying and together. You, you've also got the sort of confluence of you've got the relatively, uh, for the time at least, free market uh, orientation of a lot of Britain. Yeah. Um, you've got its 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 already existing trade networks with the rest of the world because it's a sort of maritime nation. And both of those things depend on having high population, which you can't do without yeah, having yeah. good agriculture, and domesticated animals, and, 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 and plants and, and, and yeah, trade. The British have this very kind of unique culture in the world that develops for various reasons, some of them geographic, some of them accidents of history, uh, and, and all of these co- factors kind of confluence together, and they're like the spark that ignites the tinder. Hmm. And once that spark is lit, other countries can kind of pick up what's happened. You know, this is why And exceed. And, and, and exceed it, yes. Um, but it needs that initial spark, which only seems to develop in one place at one time. Well, and but, but that's for one of the what, that's one of the flashpoints yeah. in industrialization. There's other kinds of industrialization that happened long before. And one of the things Jonathan Reader looks at uh, in his biography of the African continent, a kind of uh, hundred, you know, kind of a history that spans millions of years in some senses and a few thousand in another, is that uh, is smelting, smelting of metal. Mm. So. Africa's got a lot of really good metal deposits, but the way that it's deposited is often a little bit deeper, and it's often, when it's shallower, in a loo- it's in, how do, I, how do I explain it? It's like the metal is combined with other stuff, so you have to melt it down in order to get the pure metal. 
but you have to melt it down at a higher temperature. Like you can only, you're only in business once you get to a thousand degrees. Whereas in China, very, very difficult to do for um, uh, primitive furnaces. Well, so they could do it in China, mm. but that's because they started with stuff that with they could do at five hundred exactly, degrees. Yeah. And getting the five hundred degree one going, it's not that hard. You can make a fire at home that gets to five hundred degrees if you just pack a bit of clay uh-huh. and put the fire in there. A lot, a lot but then to get it to a thousand degrees, you kind of first have to go through the five hundred degree yes. stuff. And we just didn't have the five hundred degree material yeah. basically until colonization. Uh, and then once you can build those furnaces, you can start making the really good stuff, but then that just gets extracted by the guys who came and brought you the technology in the so, first place. Yeah. So what's, what's our point here? Our point is that uh, colonialism changes the continent. Yeah, introduces maize, introduces a whole bunch of uh, domesticated animals uh, that we eat daily mm. um, and, and fruits and veggies. So that's kind of important, sort of just very basic way that... Uh, colonization surely has a positive legacy. It introduces foodstuffs that make the land more productive uh, and, that, and that then in a cultural way get developed into cuisines, into uh, you, you know, various cultures have their particular way of blending these fruits, vegetables and, uh, co- uh, and starchy staples. To, to, and, and that gives that flavor of your mother's home-cooked stuff that kind of has a distinctly Tosa feel or a distinctly Zulu feel or whatever. That that is part of the legacy, right? Well, I mean, I and mean, then in this a, is this is one of the fallacies of thinking about history as being European history or African history or Asian history, right? Is you know what is a kind of typical European dish? Well, even in the Middle Ages, uh, the 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 height of European cuisine would have included Asian spices. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're saying here, you know, what is an African dish? We could say, oh, we think of something like. You know, puff. It's like a staple. It's like what everyone eats. It's associated with home and that that, that kind of thing. Dude, but, and cattle. Cattle came from the north. Um, yeah, but like before a lot of it before colonization. Well, no, it came from east. Uh, colonization from the east. Yeah, well, the, Arab traders. Yeah, sort of. Uh, Not all colonization is done by Europeans. No, of course. And there's settling of Arab traders down the east coast of basically where Kenya is today. And uh, so, so these things, but these things also come. You know, the maize comes from. European traders and Va- adventurers and eventually stuff. from originally from Mexico we bring it from Mexico and trade it to people yeah. in West Africa saying you know give us your slaves chickens where cool the chickens come from uh, Thailand I think they yeah. come from yeah so you know the, there is no there's, there's, there's these interactions that go on for a long time and, and every sort of part of the world develops and introduces something into the mix in some way okay but so then Maybe someone says, well, what about just the political side? Leave the food stuff. You guys are kind of grasping at straws here. From the political side, I don't carry much uh, of a can for the United Kingdom. I went to an Afrikaans primary school where I was sort of pummeled every day with stories of <laughs> near genocidal levels of, of uh, negligent slash deliberate death in the concentration camps of the Boer women and children before Emily Hobhouse reforms that and after that Lord Kitchener's scorched earth policy, mm. which until uh, expropriation without compensation is kind of the you know greatest destruction of South African talk about holding on to food to security national grievances yeah 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 okay but so so that's an example I mean dude that's just one particular culture that I happen to tap into but like yeah. British colonial conquest definitely very murderous and and often in in many cam- cases just gratuitously evil uh, likewise uh, sort of uh, the the British oversight of 
uh, the new South African Union after the war, they kind of have this modus vivendi where they're like, well, here's how we're going to make peace with the Boers. We're going to oppress black people. Hmm. Uh, that is really a miscarriage of justice and, and liberty. But they do also introduce some of the good ideas about, for example, liberalism enters, enters uh, at least South Africa through... Um, through these sort of Western universities and thinkers, well, I'm not sure about that. No, I, but organized what we what we could call sort of the o- o- organized liberalism rather than organic liberalism, right? Uh, so right, you know, okay. And, but I don't think it comes from the Brits. I think, uh, well, you know, John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and all these people, like right? But I think a lot of the Dutch, a lot of the Dutch early yeah, settlers, and the, and were the Dutch early settlers as well have their own pretty non-racialist, a lot of intermarriage. Well, they, they really bring republicanism. Uh-huh. Yeah. in a very serious way because uh, that's what and I'm a Republican liberal rather um, than a monarchist myself so <laughs> savage but but the point is these these ideas um, you know that for example people should vote for the government yeah voting wonder, you know this is that's a this good is idea a, this is a, a a thing that is not common outside of Europe yeah until relatively recently it's a kind of universal it's an innovation that can be universalized but it happens to have an original point just like the chicken and, and or the or the orange citrus fruit and the ridiculous thing about so sort of you know people are starting to now a detractive us would say uh, so you're saying that you know uh, Africans would have been eternally enslaved to what what if the Europeans hadn't come and uplifted them with our with the democracy or whatever that's not the point the point is to recognize that uh, things are very complicated and that you can have multiple facets so just because you say isn't it great that we got republicanism from europe doesn't mean that it we're super happy and we think we should live under european domination no not at all in fact Um, that's a very counter-republican idea that we should live uh, under exactly so so that was one of the the things that was interesting about colonialism was that it imported the ideas that killed it as well yes. in a certain sense. It poisoned so, itself. Nicholas, you must have been reading Kwame Anthony Appiah. I have never read Kwame Anthony Appiah because I, just, ex- I rely on you to tell me everything he said because you know his words off by heart. So <laughs> I think he's the greatest living philosopher of race and that's exactly what he said to The Guardian, I think it was, in an interview about how we should understand the great decolonization movement basically since Rose Must Fall kind of caught light around the world. And he said, guys, you can't decolonize the philosophy department if that means taking all the white dudes off the syllabus because it just so happened to be that the enlightenment movement included a lot of white men you've got to be serious about looking at the racism and other stupid ideas that they had but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. and in particular i don't think you can have a proper understanding of how decolonization should work without the enlightenment because so much of the enlightenment is a process of understanding how people shouldn't be oppressed and an understanding of how individuals shouldn't be subjugate to state discretionary it's entirely uh, it's entirely possible for you to oppose um uh chinese imperialism in tibet and uh and uh, uh the west what's Xinjiang as they call it uh and also then not reject huawei phones and gunpowder yeah you know <laughs> exactly so modernization and decolonization you know you've got to be careful of those things and i want to say one last thing in favor of the uk especially since it's a very proud day for them Maybe the proudest thing that country ever did was abolish slavery. And it is not a totally unique thing in history, but it's a very unusual thing. And they did it to their own cost financially. They did it to their own cost politically at the time. It alienated them from a lot of allies. In the early eight, in the early 19th century, when they abolished slavery, it's a very important thing. It has a global impact. And it's a very colonial thing in the sense that they say to countries that they're ruling, look, guys, we're ruling you and you're not allowed to hold slaves anymore. 
And there's this myth that sort of white people introduced slavery to Africa. That's crazy. Slavery was everywhere that people were. It's sort of... It's a, it's a, it's a facet of every agricultural society on earth has had slavery of some kind or another. Yeah. Now, the Europeans have a very particular kind in this instance because, you know, they take uh, people to these sort of plantations in the Caribbean and it's uh, that international yeah, version. The transatlantic slave trade yeah, is it's, it's, it's particularly got, it's, gruesome. And it's also of a slightly... Yeah, it's, a, it's a different character to a lot of the others, but it's not like it was an enormous innovation. No. In a lot of ways, yeah. So and the, so the abolition the abolition of slavery is is a super important thing. And you know, Saul Plyke is the co-founder of the ANC, mm. and he's so happy that the Brits abolished slavery, and he thinks it's so important that they did that that he appeals to the anti-slavery movements a hundred years later when the 1913 Land Act is passed, mm. and says, "Guys, you Brits, you people in London and Westminster." You used to be serious about the fact that if you're going to rule over foreign peoples, it's because you're going to use better rules than they currently yes. have in place so that you're going to allow the individuals there mm. to make their own way, take their fate into their own hands and grow and, uh, and develop intellectually in terms of trade. And you are betraying your own legacy. Saul Plyke, in other words, thought that there was a very positive component to colonial legacy and that that was being betrayed. You can't understand the reason for the founding of the ANC. You can't understand the reason that the ANC, Mandela's party, now Ramaphosa's party, went to London to appeal for more colonization in 1915, not less. Mm. To say, please, will you wipe away the rules of Pretoria and Cape Town mm. and impose rules upon oh, us. The full rules of London. And it's not just there. Um, uh, the, the Basutu, when they, when they were sort of beginning to be integrated into the British Empire as a protectorate, mm -hmm. there was a certain point where the Cape Colony... Uh, basically annexed Lesotho into the rest of the colony mm -hmm. and they tried to disarm the Basutu and the Basutu said no we are subjects of the queen and as subjects of the queen we have rights mm -hmm. they took the argument seriously and yeah. they used them to justify their own freedom perfect and it was one of the reasons that 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 revolt against the uh, the the uh, the British, the, the colonial authorities of the Cape, it was called the Basutu Gun War, uh, 1870s. Um, it is one of the reasons why Lesotho is an independent country today, mm -hmm. and obviously it has its problems. Yeah. Um, but it escapes apartheid because it took at the core those original ideas that we should be independent, free citizens in this global empire. And I really do wish, if I had a magic wand to go back in time, and I could go back to 1915, I wish I could be there in the office with Saul Plyke and whatever uh, sort of minister of uh, colonial affairs he's meeting with in London to say, dude, you've got to take this guy seriously. If you could see what happens in the next 100 years <laughs> because you guys suddenly are into sovereignty uh, and anti-colonialism mm. uh, rather than being like, you know what, sovereignty is worth compromising if it's to the benefit of individuals uh, and, and if it's to combat racism. Dude, I mean, if, you could see what I, if you could see what I've seen and what, on what this country's been through, you in 1915 would definitely be for more colonization, for more of London impressing its rules upon South Africa and saying you can't tell black people that they're not allowed to own land uh, and not for less. 
that's that's one of the sort of weird twisted things about colonialism is that it sort of went to people all over the world said hey look at this really great way of doing things where we value the individual and we have sort of sovereignty and rights and the rule of law but uh, also you can't have any of that yeah and you have to listen to what we're going to say and uh, you're too stupid to think for yourself yeah the hypocrisy and the paternalism exactly that side was cuck so there was good there was a good sign there were some positive legacies many many disastrous legacies and the point of this exercise is not to say did the one overwhelm the other? Was it net good or net bad? It's just to say that in South Africa, it's taboo to say that there was anything good about colonialism at all. I think That's was, the current state of affairs. What does it do when Mazibuko said? It's like saying, was there anything good that came out of the Holocaust, was her line. Um, which is, I think, firstly, uh, when you, you exaggerate the degree, mm-hmm. because the Holocaust was a sort of... Uh, a mechanical killing exercise. There was no paternalism in that, mm-hmm. in that at all. Even it didn't even have the fig leaf of paternalism. There were, uh, yeah. There was no idea of spreading freedom. There was just the idea of one race needs to be above all others. Yes. And so we're going to spread the power of that one race. Yeah. It's different in kind. It's different in extent. Yeah. And most importantly, it's different in time. I suppose. Yes, that is another important point. I, I don't know if I've told this story before, but it it was a life changing moment for me. Uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, I was at St. Stillian's with you. And I was given the opportunity, I was sort of sponsored, uh, to go on a round square leadership conference in Switzerland, Germany, and Scotland. Scotland, we went to Gordonston School, where there's a thousand-year-old building that's round, where you know supposedly the Lord built a round building because he made a deal with the devil. Uh, and the devil said, I'll make you super rich, but in exchange, I'll get your soul. And then afterwards he reneges. He sort of gets rich and he's like, I don't want to give you my soul. I don't want to give you my soul. I like my soul just where it is in my body. And the devil says, I'll find you in a corner. And so the Scotsman says, right, we'll build a round building without (laughs) any corners. (laughs) And that's a round square. And that's why Scotland is a great nation. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the Round Square was founded, I think, after World War One or World War Two, and they thought if you can get kids to interact internationally, then by the time they're grown-ups, if people start saying, you know, all Germans are evil or all Scotsmen are evil or stuff like that, people who've had French friendly interactions are going to say, no, I know people from that side. I went there when I was young and sensitive, mm. uh, before age had withered my senses of, of, of human warmth. And I know that there's good people on the other side. Anyway, so I was lucky to be sponsored on one of these trips. And in Germany, after being there for a couple of days, one of the kids learned that I was going to the UK next. And the Germans were amazing. Boys and girls sleeping in the same dormitories and they have red wine at dinner. And <laughs> Sounds like decadence to me, but anyway. <laughs> but super smart and like like way, way hard working and at the same time way kind of comfy and they were in grand old castles down in the in the black forest halfway between munich and zurich in southern germany um anyway so the german says to me i I see you are going to the united kingdom next i will be very interested to hear what your experience is like and i say why is that he says because i've developed a theory that people in the uk and in fact around the world want what we have but they don't realize it. And I said, oh, what is it that you have that everyone in the world wants without realizing it? 
a historical blank slate. So catastrophic was the Nazi regime that it is completely easy to say that nothing good happened and that afterwards we must start afresh. The slate, if it is not blank, it is pure evil. Aside perhaps from one or two people who fought against the revolution, against the Nazis, and we remember those who were lost, but we started once more afresh. And because of this, we have been able to do fantastic things. And he was the guy who said to me, I, don't, I think this is what UK kids want. They want colonialism to be this blank slate of negativity. Like it's either blank or it's just totally so they negative. they say we're New Britain now. We, we have nothing in connection with those people. We don't have to account for anything. We totally renounce did. the past yeah. and we're starting afresh. We don't have to even think about it. Yeah. It's too. It's nasty and complicated currently. We wish it was just it one is, thing so just we can pure just evil. dismiss it and not think about it. And that way, you, and that way you'd never have a problem with the Scottish uh, guys trying to go away from the English guys or the Northern Irish guys. All of those identities would sort of cease to matter in the same way because the only thing that would matter is New Britain. And the same in France and the same in uh, America to an extent. If it, if it could just say everything about America yeah, was we, terrible. Our country started in, the British, you know, there's a certain group of people in Britain who would love to say our, our country started in 1960. Yeah. One of the big problems is that col the colonial project was like 300, 400 years long. And so it's just such a long time that even if you've got a hell of a lot of deaths on the one hand, you've got a hell of a lot of human heroism on the other. You've got a lot of people like Livingston just trying to explore and spread good ideas and trying to help people combat malaria. And the slave trade. Yeah, and trying to take out the slave trade. And taking out the slave trade, I mean, there's just nothing like it that the Nazis did. Not even You can't even begin. It's a crazy comparison to say, to compare slavery abolitionists to Nazis. I mean, it's sick. So anyway, this is why I think we've laid out the argument for why there. it shouldn't be a taboo yeah. to say yeah. that there were some positive legacies from colonialism. But currently in South Africa, I mean, if this podcast were to be caught by uh, no, 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 a human rights commission, a human rights commission, yeah. they might seriously consider uh, coming after us. Yeah, you know, the, this is the question is in fifty years, if someone heard this podcast. Uh, yeah. who was just an ordinary South African, would they be outraged? Or would they be like, how did these guys spend like half an hour talking about something so boring and obvious? Talking about something so obvious. Of mm. course there were positive legacy to it. And so my thought is that if if it's, currently it's taboo. If it's not taboo, then that's a simple sign that the public square is no longer operating by rules, largely con you know constructed by uh, white transferred race nationalists who are like, you can't say anything nice about uh, that stuff. Uh, and also some black race nationalists like the Malemas who say, you know, the worst date in history is 1652 because mm. that's when wa some white people arrived on the shores of South Africa. If the public square was more transparent, partly it would mean that ANC members could think more seriously about the ANC's history. They could think, how come we had Sol Pleike founding the party saying, we really are proud to be British uh, subjects and, mm. and we wish that you guys would treat us seriously as British subjects and then yep. get to the point where uh, the ANC is kind of sympathizing with uh, Zimbabwe, which is destroying its whole country in some kind of decolonizing uh, farce. 
But it's not just that. In a very deep way, I think we'd be able to have more sober conversations about so much policy. Expropriation without compensation, the sort of cut your own nose to spite your face way of ruining the South African economy just in the hopes that you're going to punish some white individual farmers. Or, uh, you know, and then with the... That, that's kind of how the idea started, and it's already metastasized to the point where the executive is asking for discretion over determining property rights so that municipalities can confiscate land from black people yeah. to stuff their own pockets. But it's, you know, it's like none of, that, none of that could possibly happen, I think, in a, unless you have an authoritarian government. If, you, if you've got a democracy where the media space and the Twitter sphere and all that stuff in the public square is run by people who aren't committed to this esteem team of being purely anti-colonization uh, or anti-whiteness or anything like that, I think, we'd ha- I think we'd have a much more... It's hard. I can't imagine a South Africa outside of the authoritarian situation where this is no longer taboo and you still have a party like the EFF getting 2 million votes. <laughs> well, we can only hope. But uh, we should probably call it there. We've had a... We've got to try and keep these things under an hour. We've got to keep them under an hour. Okay, that that kind of that yeah that draws us to a point. I just want to say one more thing that you had brought up in our earlier conversation. Oh yeah, which I, was, I love to be quoted. So please go ahead. <laughs> so you'd said that you think it's not necessarily a great indicator because it could be the case that ordinary South Africans, it's no longer taboo. Like privately, if you speak to ordinary South Africans, black, white, colored, Indian, privately, they'll very readily. Many people will very readily uh, say uh, that colonization had some positive legacies and IRR polling shows that 60% of South Africans, uh, indicates that 60% of South Africans think that all this talk of colonization and racism is just a way for politicians to make excuses for themselves, right? So we already are there privately, but I'm talking about the public square, what you're allowed to say out loud, what you're allowed to make jokes about. And your point was, well, it could be the case that comedians start making jokes uh, like the Monty Python skit about the Romans, mm. where they're like, uh, the skit is basically some 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 Brits are getting together and they're like, oh, the Romans colonized no, they're, us. Uh, they're playing um, revolu- uh, uh, Judean rebels in the time of Jesus, thinking about why they should be throwing out the Roman Empire because, of course, the Romans have never done anything for them. And then someone says, well, what about the aqueducts and the roads and the public health well it starts just with the aqueducts it's like well other than the aqueducts those roman colonists never did anything good for us and it's like well what about the roads well other than the roads and the aqueducts and the dentists and the medicine and the how do we get to a society that can make that joke if and your point was if we got to a society where people are making that joke the pure minati show guys uh uh the are are kind of this is you know this is like a a standard kind of joke that could be the case in the public square but we could have an authoritarian ruling us who is ruling us in a really bad way, is dragging us ever further left. And your other example was, I suppose, a more radical one like the one we started with, which is not really very realistic, but I suppose if it was in 50 years' time and basically all white people had been driven out of the country and all Indians and most colored people had sort of no longer thought of themselves as being distinct from black people in any kind of way. Uh, So if it was basically just black people in South Africa, then maybe you could tell that joke Mm. without it having the same meaning 
it could just be like, well, we got rid of the guys, so now we can make fun of the fact that actually when they came, there were some good things. Mm. And uh, it's not really an issue because we've kind of won the battle of racial purity mm. or of racial purification. So, I mean, and my repost to that was, I just there's just no ways that's happening in 20 or 40 years. So it's not a dashboard. So that, whereas... Your thing with the with the electric fence. <laughs> In twenty years, maybe no one sells electric fences because one one would like to think though that people will figure out a workaround for that for the no electricity problem if we've got twenty years to do it. Yeah. I mean, even Nigeria, everyone just has a generator. Yeah, but your generator, you just you don't want to be paying for electric fence on your generator. You just try <laughs> to get barbed wire. <laughs> Anyways, okay. So aside from the the crazy scenarios that aren't really going to happen, I just I think one of the useful things about this dashboard indicator is is just to get people to think about the esteem economy. So it's a question that's not about money, it's not GDP, it's not about power, it's not who's in charge, what parties in the leadership, what kind of policies are in place. It's about what is the public square, what are the rules of discourse in the public square? What is the culture of free speech like? Yeah, and if you know that the that the rules are such that it's totally normal to say quite obvious things uh, that only irritate race nationalists or people who have a really distorted view of history. Um, then if the public square is still plugged into power in the sense that pe ordinary people can still exert pressure on politicians, then you, then you probably know enough to know that the politicians aren't screwing up that badly because under pressure politicians generally perform at least well enough that most people can get on with their lives, go to school, send their kids to school, accumulate a bit of an asset here and there, go on holiday and stuff like that. So, in defense of the public square, consider this uh, consider this time traveler's sort of thought experiment. Okay, that is, we are now going up to one hour and ten minutes, which is ten minutes longer than we're supposed to go. Same as all of our previous episodes. <laughs> we're going to keep breaking our promises. Uh, I promise. <laughs> next time will be an hour thanks for tuning in and uh yeah have a good weekend and uh at least brexit is over <laughs>